With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. On this episode of the Fieldhouse Files, I'll discuss the Pacers' impressive showing against the Hornets and preview their second playing game against the Wizards with Fred Katz. And welcome into the Fieldhouse Files, the podcast where I take you behind the scenes with the Pacers, talk to individuals on and around the team, and tell you what you need to know. Welcome back in, everyone. I'm Scott Agnes. Hope you caught my last podcast earlier this week as I was joined by Rod Boone of Sports Illustrated's Hornets site, and it turns out they laid an egg. Pacers won and played terrific, but at the same time, Hornets looked awful. They looked disinterested. They looked like they were disconnected, that they weren't all in it. They weren't winning the 50-50 balls. The Pacers got off to an incredible start. Brogdon making his return after not playing all month. He had missed the last 10 games with that right hamstring strain, and it was a welcome return because earlier Tuesday, news coming out that Karis LeVert would be unavailable. And not just for Tuesday's game, a play-in game, a must-win scenario for the Pacers, but probably... For their next couple of weeks, entering the NBA's health and safety protocol, which then requires a player to be isolated and quarantined for at least 10 days. They can't then return to the facility for another couple days after that. So really, you're looking at at least two weeks plus missed time. you got to make up for conditioning and being away from your teammates. And who knows if the Pacers season will still be going on at that point. Brogdon came back, knocked down a three. Pacers made six of their first seven three-point attempts, and by that point, it was all over. They took a 14-point lead, 24 points at halftime, up to 39 in the fourth quarter. And something I thought was notable and and could impact Thursday's game is the fact that the Pacers' starters were rested. They didn't have to play the fourth quarter because of their dominance earlier in the game. Brogdon returned, played 21 minutes, had 16 points, 8 assists, And he, along with the other starters, excluding O'Shea Brissett, but he's young, has fresh legs. They all sat that fourth quarter, and that's incredibly valuable to guys like Sabonis, to Brogdon, to Justin Holliday, and even Doug McDermott, who scored 21 points, 20 of those in the first half, four of six from three-point land, and what a year he is having. Remember, he's in a contract year, and so is T.J. McConnell. 17 points for TJ, five rebounds, another game with four steals. This is one of those games where you could just write about anything, and it was notable. I mean, Sabonis, one assist away from a triple-double, only played 32 minutes, didn't play in the fourth quarter. 14 points, 21 rebounds, nine assists. Pacers had a good vibe to them. As Justin Holiday said, they're clicking. And they're not exactly sure why that is and why now, but it is working. And I think that was the most fun game for Pacer fans perhaps all season. One of their best games, certainly. I'd throw out the OKC game. They're in full tank mode. Not a lot of talent on there. Probably not one player active that most fans can name. This one, on the other hand, all the stakes on the line, the chance to continue on, the chance to play in Thursday's game with the right to advance into the playoffs 
for yet another year, and the Pacers brought it. Shot 55%, won the rebounding battle, and that is so important against this Hornets team. How about Bismarck Biombo? Started at center, played three minutes, didn't play the rest of the game. They had to go smaller. And as I wrote at FieldhouseFiles.com in my game story, Pacers had the excuse. Karras being out, Brogdon questionable. You didn't know if he was going to play. You were without three starters. This was a chance where it was kind of understandable if they lost. Now, the Hornets played so bad that it would have been even rougher if the Pacers didn't bring it. It would have spoke to that locker room and where the team is at currently. But no, they answered the bell. They showed up. They made for an entertaining game, at least from the Pacers' side of things. Knocked down 16 threes, shot 46% from distance. Got contributions from all over, including Keelan Martin. Goga Bataze, both of them scored 14 points. And so with the big win, the dominating performance, they advanced to play on Thursday. Later, Tuesday night, we saw the Boston Celtics handle the Wizards. Wizards did not look good either. Had just three three-pointers in the game. Had guys that didn't look themselves. Uh, rare off nights for guys like Russell Westbrook and others on that team. And I'll get into that more with Fred Katz here in just a second. But the results of those Tuesday games means Pacers-Wizards for the third time in less than three weeks. And if you remember, Pacers have not had very good luck against the Wizards. They've lost all three meetings. They've allowed an average of 140 points per game, at least 132 in all three meetings. Defense wasn't there. You can question their focus on those nights. And that one game back on May 3rd was the bottom point of this Pacers season when they allowed 154 points, 96 of which were scored inside the paint. The Pacers did score 141, but they looked similar to the Hornets did on Tuesday. Disinterested, didn't hustle, weren't getting back, were getting burned in transition. 30-4 to was the fast break points. I'll be curious to see how both teams show up on Thursday, knowing that if they win, they're in the postseason, but it's a daunting task. One verse eight, starting in Philly on Sunday. I wanted to preview this game. I know, again, we have about 24 hours of shelf life, but I know a lot of people very interested in this matchup, wanting to see this Pacers season continue on. And what do the Wizards look like? I talked all about it with Fred Katz of The Athletic. This game is another nationally exclusive broadcast. It's on TNT just after 8 p.m. tip-off Thursday night from Washington, D.C. And leading up to that, Read all my coverage at FieldhouseFiles.com. This Fieldhouse Files podcast can help get you in the mood and get you ready and prepared for that matchup. All right, as promised, I'm now joined by Fred Katz of The Athletic as the beat reporter covering the Washington Wizards, a team probably without this play-in tournament. They're not fighting for their lives at the end of the season, and they're not where they are coming up Thursday night hosting the Pacers for the right to be the eighth seed and have to play through Philadelphia 76ers. So, Fred, first of all, just describe what it's been like on the Wizards beat covering this team for the last month. I think most of it is probably centered around this incredible run, but also what Russell Westbrook has been able to do in the meantime. And Pacer fans certainly are well aware of his uh, success because what he did to them in both of their meetings this month. Right. I mean, I th- uh, what are his numbers against the Pacers this year? Uh, 30, 38, 32, and 973 assists? Is yeah. that, is, are those the averages? Roughly, without looking it up. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yep. Right. That's what I thought it was. Uh, no, I mean, he's, look, he's had his best games against the Pacers. 
it is it is funny. He just wrecks them. Uh, but he's he's really just been on one. I mean, he closed the year with 24 triple doubles in his last 29 games, which is just I, I don't even really know how to contextualize how ridiculous that statistic is. And, you know, was averaging 23, 14 and 14 over the final 23 game stretch over which the Wizards went 17 and six. I mean, they were really hot. They, they certainly had a little bit of a soft schedule, but they had some good wins in there. Uh, they beat the Lakers. They won in Utah, which was the first time that Utah lost in 2021 at home. Uh, they they certainly had some good wins. They beat the Warriors twice, uh, and, and they they played well. I mean, they, they jumped into the top half of the league in both offense and defense. The defense over that stretch was, was in the top 10. I think they were ninth. Mm-hmm. In points allowed per possession over that twenty-three game stretch, so they were playing well. Uh, you know, even even their last twenty games, they lost five times. Fifteen and five is a great stretch, and those five losses, every single one of those five losses was a one possession game in the final seconds. Uh, you know, the largest loss was a four point loss to the Hawks, in which you know it really. You know, they were they came down to the last shot, but Atlanta made a couple of free throws at the very, very, you know, with the second left or something like that to make it a four point game. So they kept everything extremely close uh, and unless they were winning, in which case they they often pulled away and were playing really well until they had to play the Celtics in the first playing game. And they just played their worst game in like two months. Yeah, it that I turned it on while I was writing, and it was basically Celtics the entire way. And then Jason Tatum clearly went off. Um, I think the biggest way to encapsulate perhaps where the Wizards are right now is I remember what's felt like a couple months ago. It was a given on game night that we would get yikes on Twitter. Then in the last month, <laughs> Fred, and, and if people don't know, incredible character, personality, a lot of great puns, if that's your thing. Um, on Twitter. Uh, the last month or so, Fred, it's it's primarily been, well, if you haven't been watching, here we are again. It's a one-point game with two minutes left. And that was kind of the shift that I felt from afar from yeah. this Wizards team. No, no question. I mean, every game that they played, it seemed like, for about a three-week stretch was just went to the final seconds. And, uh, you know, they. what's weird on top of that is they started the year one and seven in games that went into crunch time or clutch time as NBA.com calls it, which is a, a game within five points with five or fewer minutes to go. And they started off one and seven in those games. And, you know, the math tells you that teams for the most part are, are not disproportionately good or disproportionately bad in clutch time situations. They tend to just be as good as they are in non clutch time situations. So if a team is really, really, really good, they're probably just going to be really good in clutch time. And if a team is really bad, they're probably going to be really bad in clutch time. But It's rare over a large sample that you're going to be way worse or way better than you are outside of clutch time, in clutch time. And so it's it's almost as if after that one in seven start in, in those kinds of games with them just letting go and the defense just getting annihilated in those important moments late in close games, it's like the analytics gods were just like, you know what? I'm going to prove a point and we're going to regress this thing to the mean with the Washington Wizards. And that is how we are going to handle teaching this lesson because then the Wizards started winning a bunch of close games. And yeah, they, they had those five close losses, like I said, but they had a lot of close wins as well. Uh, and, and they've been significantly better in late game situations of late, although they've, they, they have had their, their late game 
gaffes in terms of either bad fouling or when they're supposed to foul, not fouling, uh, and and different execution issues. But uh, you know that's that's really it's really getting into the weeds of the Wizards if we go there. I think they had. They, they had bigger issues when they lost by 18 to Boston on Tuesday. Injuries have been a, a central factor to many teams, especially the Pacers. For the Wizards, the one I've been closely watching here recently is Bradley Beal. He did play significant minutes, I think 33 Tuesday night. Where is he and what is the health of the rest of the team going into Thursday's game? So he's certainly not 100%. He's admittedly not 100%. Uh, he... Strained the hamstring about a week, week and a half ago. Yeah, I guess it was a week and a half ago. He missed three games. He came back on Sunday for the season finale against Charlotte. And he just did not look like himself. You know, that was an important game for them because I'm sure as Pacers know, Pacers fans know, the the Wizards win that game, they get the eighth seed. The Hornets win that game, they get the eighth seed because they went into it tied. And the Wizards end up winning that game. But Beal really struggled. He went eight for 27 from the field. And the performance looked worse than the actual line. You know, he was limping. He was gimpy. He was holding the hamstring. He was grimacing. He was It was he concerning was to watch. Venting. It, it, it was really it was like, hard to watch. I think you should just take yourself out at this point. You're, you're probably doing more damage than good at this point. Yeah, it was really hard to watch this guy in pain. And look, I respect the toughness. I mean, it takes takes a lot of mental a lot of mental toughness and obviously a lot of physical toughness to be able to fight through that pain when you know your team needs you uh but you know that was really was really difficult to watch cuz he wasn't playing well he wasn't getting by guys and he's been talking pretty openly about it i mean in the boston game he played better but he didn't play like the league's second leading scorer which is what he was all year and you know i i had him on an all nba team i i he had an incredible year. You know, he averaged over 30 a game efficiently. He plays winning basketball. The offense is, it's not like he just hunts his own points. The offense is 13 or 14 points per 100 possessions better when he's on the floor. They were 2-10 and 10 in games that he didn't play this year. So it's not like he's just out there hunting his own points and that's how he gets to 30. It's like, no, Bradley Beal is a tremendous team basketball player and really scores within the rhythm of the offense. You know, every once in a while, I, I think this is probably true for any perimeter player who averages 30 a game. He he goes off, maybe dances a little bit too much and, and maybe goes into his isolation streaks. I don't know if you can find a 30-point scorer who isn't like that. And sometimes it works out great because he's a 30-point scorer for a reason. Uh, other times he might get a little too obsessed with it. But for the most part, the guy is unbelievable running off screens. I, I don't know if you can name five players in the league who are more dangerous, mm-hmm. you know, five perimeter players in the league who are more dangerous off the ball, running around pin downs and that kind of stuff. I don't know if you can name three. Uh, he's he's just tremendous at that. He's, he's become a really good pick and roll player. And he just doesn't have that burst right now. And he looked better against Boston. But he he didn't look like Bradley Beal. He had 22 points on 25 shots, and uh, that's you know he came out looking to facilitate more than he did in the Charlotte game, clearly. But 22 points on 25 shots is not, you know, that's not Beal. That's that's not that's not what he is. He's he's clearly hampered, and he's clearly trying to fight through it. Uh, he joked after the game last night that that we should call him the one-legged bandit. <laughs> To That's which I want to know what he's stealing in this scenario. There you go. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, I was just but, concerned for Beal knowing, look, you guys are in the play-in tournament. 
This isn't a game seven. This isn't for the top seed. Maybe take it easy and consider. But you know what? He's so competitive. And that's why all of these guys get to this point. Yeah. I mean, he he hasn't been in the playoffs in three years. This is all he cares about. It's just he, he, he also early in his career had serious injury issues. He had, he had stress fracture problems in his leg and he kind of got the injury prone label, which feels like so long ago. This was early. It really does. Yeah. Yeah. When he first came into the league and that has had a serious effect on his psyche because he's been on a mission since his first three or so years in the league. He's now in year nine, but he's been on a mission to prove, oh no, I'm not injury prone. And now he's kind of become an iron man. I mean, he had a streak of like 190 something consecutive games played at one point, which ended up getting broken. Uh, but he very rarely misses games. He's extremely tough. He toughs out through injuries and it's, it's very, uh, it's very respectable and it's very admirable, but you know, it's also, it can be hard to watch sometimes when you, when you watch a guy who is clearly hurt, who is clearly doing what he believes to be best and what he believes to be the unselfish thing. And, you know, who am I to say it's not, you know, I think some of the, the greatest sports legendary moments are just like Michael Jordan having the flu and saying, or getting poisoned by a pizza guy, I guess, and <laughs> saying, uh, you know what, I'm playing anyway. Right. And then, and then he has an iconic moment or, you know, so-and-so playing through an injury, but it's just, you know, in the moment, it's hard to watch a person go through pain. That's why I don't watch boxing or MMA. It's hard to watch a person be in extraordinary pain and just keep trucking through. And you can tell that Beal is. I'm right there with you. I don't want to see anybody get punched in the face or kicked or a woman get hit. Like, I don't get any joy in that. That was a great uh, example right there. Looking ahead to Pacers Wizards on, on Thursday, is there any reason to believe this won't be a track meet? like we've seen in the first three meetings this season. I mean, the Wizards are averaging almost 140 points per game on this Pacers team, at least 132 in every single meeting. Is there any reason to believe, Fred, that they're worn down or tired or or won't play at the same level? We saw with the Pacers on Tuesday night, you know, oftentimes come the playoffs, and no, this is not the playoffs. Usually things slow down, rotations tighten. That was not at all the case on the first play-in game. I would assume you're right. I mean, the Wizards did not push pace the way that I expected them to against Boston. And a lot of that was on Westbrook. He just didn't have the normal Russell Westbrook energy. I mean, Pacers fans have seen it. When he's got that energy and he's going at the rim, man, he's just – the only person who stops him is himself, whether because of his decision-making or because he's having an off night. But he didn't look like the Russell Westbrook we saw for the last seven weeks against Boston. It was was a very strange performance. I – it was really his strangest performance, not his worst performance of the year, but his strangest performance of the year, given his con- given the context and given the fact that he just had a a seven game streak where he had 15 plus assists, and then he has zero assists in the second half against Boston. It was just six points, one rebound, and zero assists in the second half from Russell mm-hmm. Westbrook is just not a thing that you see at all. It was it was very weird. Uh, that said. Russ has clearly made a concerted effort to push, push, push against Indiana this year. One of the Pacers' bigger issues, I would say, and you know better than I do, so correct me if I'm wrong, I I would rank right up there in the Tier 1 Pacer issues as transition defense. And, and, you know, paint defense with with Miles Turner out is, is a big problem as well. The Wizards put up 96 points in the paint against them during one of those games this year. That was the game where Russ had a 
the 20 assists, 20 rebound game, I think. And they put up 96 points in the paint and scored 154 in the game. They scored 154 points and they hit nine threes. No one does that in the NBA in 2021. So I, I imagine they're going to try to get out in transition a lot and push pace because I thought that was one of the many problems they had against Boston. And uh, I would that's the way to get Westbrook going. Just use his energy for good. Yeah, the Pacers are the worst team uh, in giving points up in the paint. They Part of it is they, they funnel guys that way, especially when Miles is there. And then they're one of the worst teams with the fast break. And that's that was the alarming issue in those three meetings, in my opinion. What you saw is Westbrook just freely operated. And some of them, there was the one game, I want to say it was the last meeting, it honestly looked like the Pacers were just going through the motions. Like they had flatly given up. And that was right around the time when, noise was starting to come out from the locker room um, about how they felt about Nate Bjorkren and things like that. So I kind of understood that. But I, that's the number one thing I look to is you can't allow for the Pacers Westbrook to have one of those magical nights, the 2020 um, type games with, you know, 20. He has had a 20 assists in their last two meetings for one, which is remarkable. And then also the fast break points, because when you allow him to just throw it down the court and they were scoring within four and five seconds, that beats a three pointer every time. So that's those are the two areas I'm highlighting. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, that's that's going to be huge for them. It's I'm I'm with you. I think it's going to be fast paced. Uh, you know, Sabonis has been playing so well lately, uh, and he was not as great against uh, Charlotte. I mean, you know this, and Pacers fans know this, but I, I feel like there's there's serious Demonte Sabonis lack of Demonte Sabonis awareness just around casual fan bases, just like how skilled he is, and you know he can get the Wizards bigs into foul trouble. And the thing with the Wizards is they play a three center rotation, which it seems like they're just going to continue to do into the playoffs because they did it against Boston. They, you know, Scott Brooks is just not really cutting his rotations. And Daniel Gafford is the best one of those guys. He mm-hmm. is the best one when you watch him play. He is the you know on-off number king of the team where the Wizards were a little bit less than nine points per 100 possessions better when he was on the floor this year. And when you watch them play with him on the floor, you can see why he just gives them an athleticism element that they don't have with Robin Lopez and with Alex Len. But that being said, Gafford can get into foul trouble. It happened against Boston. He had three fouls in six minutes. And Sabonis is the exact kind of guy. And I know Gafford in Chicago had some moments where Sabonis really went to town on him. Uh, you know, Gafford is, is the, you know, Sabonis is the guy who can get him into foul trouble. He's so strong. He's so good down low. And you have to look for so many different things. He's just become one of the five best passing big men in the league. And I think that adds a surprise element to where if you're a big like Gafford who will try to reach into a passing lane or leave his feet on so many pump fakes, you know, Sabonis is good on those too, that if he can get Gafford out of the game and and get the bigs into foul trouble, it it really changes things. And, you know, Rui Hachimura had foul issues against Boston too. So that's something to look out for as well, not just – Obviously, how much Sabonis can take over a game because he's great, but uh, you know specifically what he will do in the moments when Gafford is guarding him because Gafford is just so essential to their success. It was telling to me in the Pacers win Tuesday night when Sabonis had just two points at halftime. There was some noise out there like Sabonis, where's where is he? It's a big game, or he's not making the impact, or see why he was picked last in, or one of the last picks in the All Star game. 
I'm like, if you're pinning it on his points, you've totally missed the boat because he, in a similar vein, is like Jokic in that they're the distributor. They're the point forward. The Pacers run their offense through him and oftentimes at best at the middle of the floor or away from the basket. And much like Russell Westbrook, too, hates missing practice, hates missing games, is going to leave it out on the floor. So in this similar vein, me and you kind of cover the same type of human every single game when with you, with Westbrook, and, and with Sabonis. And another guy you mentioned, I think, last night on Twitter is what you've seen from Doug McDermott. And I think for the Pacers to have success, he's that critical, not X factor, but now he's in the starting lineup. Normally he would be coming off the bench, but if he can knock down two or three shots, that's a game changer for this Pacers team especially against a Wizards bunch that, as you said, does not hit a lot of threes. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't I didn't consider McDermott for sixth man of the year. I have a vote, and I, I didn't consider him for sixth man of the year. I ended up going with Joe Ingles, and I put Jalen Brunson second and Jordan Clarkson third. And I had a couple other guys who I had on there. You know, I, if, if I had to remove Clarkson or something, you know, I, I put Tim Hardaway Jr. or Chris Boucher or, or another one of those guys. But I, I put together an Excel spreadsheet. Uh, for every single award and I do it every year and I throw all the advanced numbers in there. It's not the only thing that I consider when I vote on an award, but it's, it's, it's a nice little uh, thing to be able to look at. And McDermott was on the spreadsheet. You know, I, I do the spreadsheet, even though I'm the only person who ever sees the spreadsheet, I do the spreadsheet as if fans of that fan base are going to look at it and be like, how could you snub our guy from the spreadsheet? (laughs) Even though that's how much I, worry about what people think of me on the spreadsheet that nobody is ever going to see. I still do it just in case like somebody hacks my Google sheets and puts out my six man spreadsheet. Uh, it's and ridic- McDermott was, was on the spreadsheet. It's ridiculous, he, Fred, how much, how serious some fans and even some players take some of these award awards. They take it personal when it's like, no, it's not against you. Maybe it's representative of what another player did. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> yeah, no, he, he was great this year. I mean, he shot, he shot the lights out. He scored well. You know, he shot he shot 64% on twos this year. Like, he he was wildly efficient for them. Is that right? It was 64%? He, he modified yeah, his game so well, Fred, that he was way more productive and, and contributed more with his backdoor cuts, with his layups, with his slice cuts. Well, much more than just the corner threes and things like that. And part of that is, too, is how defensives had to play him. But he was more reliable from inside um, based on him cutting. And I thought I give him credit for adapting his game. No question. He's he's gotten a lot better. I, I covered him in Oklahoma City, actually. That's right. And him, him and Domas. And uh, it, he, he is so much better than he was then. You know, it's funny to see his evolution from being like a post up guy who <laughs> could shoot threes in, in college to then trying to figure out I, I'm, I'm not a post up guy in Chicago and. And then I'm just going to be a spot up three guy. And now he's, you're right, he's, he's figured out this way of playing in which he, he reads the game quite well off the ball. And he's good running off of screens. And, and he works perfectly he, with Domas. And, and that's, yes. that's the other thing. Those, those two go hand in hand. And, don't, and Doug hit his first four threes. Two of them were assisted by Domas. And that goes to my previous point. Yeah, for sure. No, he's, he's, he's been really good this year. And, and the Wizards will have moments where they struggle in three-point defense. I mean, Boston, don't look at the three-point percentage for Boston last night. Look at the three-point attempts. Yeah. They shot 33%. They hoisted 45 of those things. More of those could have gone in. They had a bunch that rimmed out. 
I did not think the Wizards three-point defense was particularly great last night. And, you know, one of the big keys for them is is Howell Neto, who is also dealing with a left hamstring strain, the same exact injury as Beal. I don't think it's as serious. But Neto is really important just to keep them out of kind of scramble situations. He he's a, He's just been a solid presence for them all year. And that's especially true on defense where they started off terribly and got a lot better throughout the year. And I think a lot of that corresponds with Neto's play where he's just one of those guys who just, he tends to be in the right place. He reads passing lanes. Well, he can get steals in passing lanes without really gambling, which is a tremendously valuable skill for a defender. And, and he doesn't really have size, but he's just, annoying you know if you're comparing him to one Pacers defender he's not as as good as him but he's you know it's a it's the TJ McConnell effect where it's just he's just annoying and he can get into passing lanes and and you know he's not as good of a defender as as McConnell who was an absolute killer defensively this year he was on the all defense spreadsheet by the way but not on the team what Uh, what, was TJ McConnell on your six-man spreadsheet because I thought if anything he actually deserved more consideration for that award, even above Doug. I mean, he led the league in steals. The impact, more than anything, though, was he was instant energy off the bench, was scoring in double figures quite regularly, uh, I think was top 15 in field goal percentage this season. Yeah, I think he led the league in deflections for 36 minutes. Yeah. Is that right? It sounds right. He, I, I don't know off the top of my head, though. If he didn't lead the league, he was second in the league. Yes, he was on the spreadsheet. He was on the spreadsheet. You know, I went... <laughs> I went through the spreadsheet and I realized I forgot to I forgot to put him on when I showed it to somebody and, and somebody pointed it out to me. So I I, I disrespected TJ McConnell on the spreadsheet. Some to fans the, to the nobodies who see it. Some fans have no idea how much time some voters not all, but most I would say invest in this, like yourself. I used to have a vote, don't anymore, but that is one of my disappointments is nobody in Indy, by the way has a, a vote and I think it's important for every market to be represented but that's, I agree that's a secondary you. point. I agree. Somebody in Indy should have a vote. Why does nobody in Indy have a vote? So I did and then after uh being let go by the Athletic um and now running my own thing Mark Broussard said, "Yeah, we're going to need to take that back." Which I understand, but I, I still wish either myself or Jay Michael had a vote. Wait, why does Jay Michael not have a I don't, if I remember right, he doesn't want one. Or no, actually, Mm. it's part of the USA Today network, and I don't think they're allowed to. That'll do it because Gannett doesn't do voters. Right. Because I was going to say, Jay Jay Michael's pretty opinionated. I feel like he'd be down to vote. Yeah, he never uh, shies away from confrontation, but that's right. He's not allowed for his work, and then. For me, not being part of a, a mainstream network is why I don't have one. So, well, yeah, I'm going to start the campaign. All right, get Scott Agnes a vote. <laughs> it's That's... a lot of pressure. I'll give you that. Last thing here, uh, Fred, to wrap up. Just general thoughts going into this one. I'll, I guess I'll start. I think Pacers flying high after Tuesday's performance is one of their best performances of the season. Everybody played well. They kind of caught lightning in the bottle and uh, surprised me and everybody else, I think, with that performance, especially without Karis LeVert. He's not going to play on Thursday. He's entered the health and safety protocols, which is very much surprising, too, because the Pacers had been nearly perfect in health and safety protocols. Wizards, you guys are talking about Washington. They, without two weeks, didn't play, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, six consecutive games they had suspended to the second half of the season yeah so two very different scenarios Pacers were not really impacted until now Jakar Sampson missed one game I think that was a false positive Wizards meanwhile were out for a couple weeks but 
Uh, the Pacers finally had some fun Tuesday night. I think they'll carry that over, but realistically, the Wizards have always given them fits, and so I think if Westbrook performs at his typical levels and they have success in the fast break, uh, I'm concerned about uh, what the Wizards are able to do and how they'll be able to respond coming off this loss. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's true. I I would say for the Wizards, it's really about the extra points. You know, the NBA in 2021 is about – people say it's about the three. It's it's really actually simpler than that. It's about the extra points. It's about threes and free throws. You get your extra point from taking a shot beyond the arc if you make it. You get an extra point if you hit one at the line. Yeah. And that's really what it is. And if you look at the breakdown from that game against Boston, Boston made 27 free throws and they made 15 threes. That's your, that's your 42 extra points, which is a good number. And the Wizards got to the line only 20 times. They made 17 free throws, and they shot 3 of 21 from 3. And Bradley Beal made the point after the game, and I think he was 100% right. Uh, and this is – I'll paraphrase, but he, he essentially said, you know, the issue wasn't just that number 3. It was the number 21. And, uh, and he said, you know, the analytics are crazy. The more you take, the more you make. It's like that, that is exactly how it works. It's, it's well, well-placed sarcasm. And, uh, you know, they got to be able to get up shots. Stavis Bertans shot 0 of 7 against Ugh. Boston. And they just got to be able to get him looks, get Neto looks. If Garrison Matthews in the game, get him looks, get Beal looks. I mean, they, they got to be able to get up threes, and, and that's how they're going to be able to get those extra points. They're not a good three-point shooting team, but 3 of 21 is is just – you know, it's not doable in the NBA. I had a stat in my story from this morning after the game where in the last 10 years in the NBA, a team in the playoffs has had has made three or fewer threes 78 times. It's actually a lot. So it happens about eight times a postseason in the last 10 years that a team will make three or fewer threes. So it happens a lot. The most points in any of those performances is 107. Boston scored 118. So good luck beating Boston if you're going to make three threes. Good luck beating the high-paced Pacers if you're going to make three threes. That's just not how this is going to work. You need to figure out other ways to prop up your offense too, and that's also getting to the line. It's those extra points. So when Boston gets 42 extra points on their 15 threes and their 27 free throws, and it's 42 to 20 in that category, and you lose by 18, you know, that's the difference. So they got to figure out some way to make the offense more efficient. I think the easiest and most intuitive fit is playing at a faster pace and and really figuring out a way to attack the rim better. Uh, that that I think will help getting out in transition, which they did not do well against Boston, and I think they should be able to do well against Indiana. And 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 finding ways to to attack switches and and get to the line. The 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 player movement against Boston just wasn't good and they had a lot of foul trouble Gafford was in it and Westbrook was in it and Rui Hachimura picked up his fifth foul after only 10 minutes of play uh you know it was it was a really really uh you know bad postseason debut for him uh so so I think that has got to be the key even if they're not making threes get to the rim uh, but you know, I also think they got to take more than 21 of those. It seems to me, if I'm the Wizards, you throw out that last game, and hey, this is the exception. That's not at all who we are. Let's move past it and 
let's take on the Pacers Thursday because <laughs> as, as you listed, the number of different things there are just very unlike the Wizards team there. But guess what? The the winner gets the chance to move on against the 76ers who's been resting at home for the week. So I'm kind of laughing at that thought. That's why I don't like to play in tournament. But I know you've kind of changed your opinion on that, but that's a whole different uh, subject here. I appreciate it, Fred. Thank you for having me, man.